The passage we're going to look at here is the strapping on the belt of truth. And uh, it's taken here from Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm not going to read the passage yet. I want to just kind of segue into this. Um, Years ago, I was teaching at a Christian high school in Charlotte, North Carolina, and one of the pastors from a mega church there in Charlotte came in and sat down with the high school students and, and was talking with them, and he shared a story that I'll never forget. He said, you know, he said, uh, now, now picture, this was a pastor of a church, and he had read the Bible and studied it and had devotions, and, and had, he knew a lot. He had preached a lot. He said, one day I flew down to Tampa, Florida, and he said, I was visiting in my parents' home, and they went away for a couple nights, so he said, I was there home alone in Tampa, and he said, I had just started to slip off into a deep sleep, and he said, suddenly the lights flicked on, off and on very quickly, twice. He said, the first time it woke me up, he said, the second time I saw a figure of a man standing in the door. And he said, within a matter of minutes, my bed was surrounded by these guys, and one of them stuck a gun to my head. (laughs) He said, you want to know what I was thinking about at that moment? He said, I was reviewing everything I believed about the resurrection of the body and the resurrection of Jesus Christ because he said, I was sure I was going to die. And um, he said, while they robbed the place and they got what they wanted, then they, the one guy holding the gun to his head, they came back into the room and said, what do you want us to do with him? He said, just kill him. And obviously it wasn't his time. And they left. And I never forgot that. That, you know, you, you read the Bible, there, there are things that intrude into our lives that is no surprise to God. And that's fortunately will not happen to anybody in this room that hopefully. But we don't know until moments like that happen how much the enemy of God hates us. And so as I, as I left that day, I've just never gotten that, that thought out of my head, am I prepared for whatever will come against me? Are you prepared for whatever is now coming against you in these uncertain times? The doctrine of the resurrection ceased in that moment to become just a theological debate. This was real. And I think the scriptures are quite clear when Jesus says to us, that if we will be a follower of him, we must take up our cross and follow him. And you know, anybody who lived in Jerusalem that saw a man carrying a cross knew that man was a dead man. He was on his way to an imminent execution. Jesus said, take up your own cross, which is his way of saying, you and I need to be prepared to die for Jesus. That needs to be the way we think and live. We don't live for this world. We live for Jesus Christ. 
and all that he has us here on this earth to do. And uh, as I think about what we're going to read, I think Paul had, had, had had the most successful ministry of all his apostolic church planting ministry right there in Ephesus, as I've shared before. He spent close to three years there. Nowhere else did he spend that kind of time and go that deep with the group. And so when he writes these words, this is at the end of the book. And at the end of the book, what he's doing is he's recounting all the things that he and that young church had been through. They had lived through riots. There had been such, such turmoil in the local economy that Christianity had begun to destroy the sale of idolatrous items in the marketplace. And when the economy was starting to get hit, that's when the riots broke out. And so there emerged in Ephesus an international movement, if you will, because people came from all over the world to put a stop to this one called King Jesus. Well, my brothers and sisters, we're seeing a lot of, a lot of things change in our own country and our foundations are being broken up. And I think it is definitely long past due for the body of Christ in America to understand what our call is, and we cannot give ground. In Ephesians chapter 6, I'm reading from verse 10. <clears throat> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the, of the present darkness, against the spiritual forces in heavenly places. Therefore, now he says it a second time, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Three things I want to lay out that I think just leap off the text here and that is, is both practical but is a good heads-up reminder that with whatever the world throws at us, whether personally or as a group, here are, here are the things we need to know. And the first is this. When he says, what he, when he writes these words to be strong, be strong in God's provision, which is what he calls the whole armor of God. And, um, but, but I don't know if you notice, the paragraph starts with one simple little word, finally. <laughs> now that word in the Greek is not the typical word that appears for therefore. But in this case, it has kind of a contextual, temporal idea. He's saying finally means, I want you to reflect back on what you have, I've been writing you about and what you've experienced here in Ephesus. 
And I think, for instance, it's got to run our eyes at least back to chapter 1, verse 19, when he says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? That's you. That's me. Okay? He's talking to the church. He's talking to us as believers. Now, talking about the armor of God, here's what he's getting at. He puts our eyes on Jesus. He's already told us about him. He says, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this present age, he's speaking about present history there, as well as here, but he says, but also in the age to come, which is what's coming in eternity. He, God the Father, put all things under his feet, God the Son, and he gave him as head over all things to the church or in behalf of the church. Jesus is not just Lord over this church or the local churches across the world. He is Lord. He is the cosmic king. And notice, he just gives a host of words here to describe over and over all kinds of authorities and powers and structures. So it's all there. He's not left anything outside, hanging loose, outside the control and the focus of God. Okay, so what what is he doing when he says, be strong in God's provision? Very simply, several things come out of that. One is, he says, prepare for battle by using what you have already been given in Christ Jesus. He's not really saying You need to get something you don't have. He's saying, you already have been given this. Now by faith, you need to understand it and embrace it and believe it. Like again in in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I want to just kind of take a moment and explain something. A lot of commentators, when they handle this text will we'll spend a good portion of their time talking about the Roman armor, you know, what the, what the Roman soldier would wear. Now, no doubt that was in his mind, but actually, armor was something that was typical for all armies. But in this case, it's not about a Roman soldier. And it's not even about demons and about you and me that he's focusing on. This is actually a bit of a quotation that is coming straight out of the Old Testament. When the Messiah is described and prophesied in the Old Testament, there'll be many portrayals of him. Like, behold to us, a son is born, a child is given. There'll, There'll be portrayals, but often the Messiah is portrayed as a great warrior who straps on the armor of God and he goes to do battle with the people of God. That's the picture. That's where it starts and it is King Jesus 
who has inaugurated the beginning of his final battle against Satan himself. So when he says these words, prepare for battle, he's telling us that we are to at least know two things. First, we are to know who God is. Remember, you cannot draw strength in a moment of crisis or attack. You cannot draw strength from an unknown God. You got to know who he is. And so this requires you and me not waiting till that moment, but in advance of that moment, which means right now and every day of life God gives you and every hour you have in this day, you need to be giving due diligence to digging into God's word and learning and growing and applying what what you're reading. And as Seth has pointed out, that involves the mind, it involves the heart, the emotions, the commitments, what's really important, but it involves the hands, your whole body. And so what he, he's telling us is that you need to know who God is. I mean, really know him. Not just head knowledge, but an intimate relationship with him. But he goes on to, to speak in what we read about his sovereignty. I mean, think about it. His sovereignty. He talks about he's king of kings and lord of lords. That's what he's described. There's nothing, there's not a solitary atom in this universe that is not under his control. And if that's true, then there's no nation or no government that is not also under his control. Revelation 4 Sometimes I used to wonder, why does Jesus, when he gives the last book of the New Testament to the church, and he gives it to John, who he puts on a desert island and makes him sit there alone for a while, and then he reveals this to him. Why does he, when he gives him that book, from chapter 4 on, it begins to describe an international, throughout history, an international alliance of, of Satan's power against the Word of God, against the church, but it intensifies in what we call the Great Tribulation. Why does he give this vision to John before he tells him all this terrifying stuff? And the answer is obvious if you think about it, because John himself, before he could handle what Jesus was going to unpack in the letter, he needed to be sure that God was up to the job. Amen? Come on now. Thank you. Quit acting like a Presbyterian church. And here's, here's what, here's the vision. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's a vision of God's throne. And, he, and these creatures, uniquely made to survive and work in the presence of God, who is a, like a great fire, who consumes. Listen to this. He is the Lord God Almighty. Pantocrator, pan, every, krator, power. He has it all. 
There is no power that is not under his power. And he goes on to say, not only does he have all power, but he, he was, he is, and is to come. And then he goes on, the creatures be, go on to say, to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. So he always was in the past, he existed He always exists now and he always will exist in the future. But then he ties it to this planet and they they then turn to God and say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, for you created all things and by your will they existed and they are created. (laughs) He made the stuff. He made the stuff not just winding it up like a clock and walking away. He controls the stuff. He cannot be the author of sin, but clearly we have a picture of majesty, of God's supreme sovereignty. You know, I know Seth went through boot camp, and I I heard some of the horror stories, what you passed out and ended up in the hospital, right? Because you were dehydrated, huh? I mean, it was brutal, wasn't it? Did you want to quit a few times? Uh, Listen, we all want to quit, but in order to be a good soldier, you got to go through boot camp because you got to learn how to handle a rifle. You got to learn how to understand orders. You got to learn how to, to develop strategies. You got to learn how to use the resources you have to bring the victory. And I think (laughs) there's kind of a spiritual boot camp. That's what I think, in a sense, discipleship is like, where God calls all of us to take the time, and this is what this passage is saying, to look at the resources that you and I have been given in Jesus. But it's not just to look at them. It's to know how to use them properly which is going to be unpacked later in in this section of Ephesians. So you've got to focus through mental and emotional preparation. It's not just head stuff here. It's enough to know God is sovereign. But like David, the guy who had the gun to his head in the middle of the night, who was waiting to die... What is he thinking about but the resurrection of the body? And he's mentally going through that, which means he had spent time studying it. Being prepared doesn't happen overnight. It takes not only head knowledge, but it takes exercise and application. Prayer. Prayer is part of this. Meeting frequently. Small groups, prayer groups, meditation. Meditation is taking what you read in God's Word and personalizing it and chewing on it like a cow chews on his cud. You begin to to internalize and digest the content that you're seeing. Read great Christian books, by the way. Be committed to be. The reason we get together is not because it's a Christian routine, but it's simply because we need each other. And uh, it was actually in the early church in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 
when the church, the Jewish Christian church, was starting to struggle when the writer writes these words. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another. That means to provoke, by the way. To provoke one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. So it's not just that you occupy a seat, but it's that you're here engaging with believers and encouraging each other in the stuff that's going on out there in the world. There's a second point that leaps out of here, and that is you've got to know your true enemy. You've got to know who he is, and you've got to know how he thinks. And the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark when it describes this, this kind of strategy. Again, put on the whole armor of God, it says in verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the schemes. When you hear the word scheme, doesn't that kind of bring an an idea of someone who wants to harm you and they're looking for ways to deceive you and hurt you? That's what that word means. To fool people. And so Satan, who has been practicing for thousands of years, is now going to practice on you and me. And so Paul is warning the believers right then and there, the only way you're going to be up to it is you've got to know your enemy. I, got, I just want to say this very quickly. I, I have been concerned that some of the commentators and, and what I hear oftentimes when we talk about things being bad and having a struggle, and we talk about this as if The spiritual warfare is only against an unseen force. He definitely talks about that. But oftentimes Christians kind of take that as a segue to say, well, you know, people are just going to do this stuff. And so we don't actually take any stand in this world or push back legitimately against evil. That's not what he's saying. In fact, the Bible is full of two, two realms where evil definitely is, is uh, going on in this world. One is, it does come from the world system. But the other is, it's that unseen world. It is both of them at the same time. And so we have examples where, even in Acts 2, after the Jewish leadership of the Sanhedrin had colluded together with the Romans and made sure they nailed Jesus to the cross. And what they did was unjustly, it involved false charges. But God had determined to use that injustice, and Jesus was no victim of circumstance. He was exactly where he needed to be, doing exactly what God had appointed him to do so that he would die unjustly for your sins and mine. Amen? And so what Peter, knowing this, he recognized the hand of evil, but he also recognized a human hand as well. He says, men of Israel, in Acts 2.22, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God 
with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you, he points his finger, you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. So what they did fulfilled God's will. But how they did it did not excuse them from culpability or responsibility for their wrong. And Peter points that out. I could give you many examples. We don't have the time. But I'm simply saying to you, it's not just that spiritual warfare is this thing out there fighting demons in an unseen world. It involves them and it involves people and institutions and things that the world brings that Satan uses to try to cause the will of God to be derailed. Now here's the real question. If then he commands us to stand firm, then here's the question I have to ask and you have to ask of yourself. <laughs> Do I really want to take on the devil? <laughs> really? Um, do I have to? Why did he have to make it a command? Am I really serious about this battle? Can I just negotiate with the devil? Can we sit down at the, at the table and negotiate and, you know, I'll give a little here, you give a little there. Listen, appeasement and retreat is never an option because God commanded us to take a stand. You hear that? And we're talking not just privately, but we're talking publicly that the church has an evangelistic voice, but we also have a prophetic voice. And you'll see in the history of the church, they always exercised both. And so I think, for instance, of a guy named Winston Churchill who stood alone before Hitler uh, started bombing England, and he kept telling them, you need to know what this man is up to, and he said these words, an appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile hoping it will eat him last. <laughs> and then he also said, and he was talking about Hitler, he also said, you cannot negotiate with a tiger when your head is in his mouth. So he definitely was telling the nation, you, you can't make a compromise with evil. I have a friend who uh, knew Chris Well, A.W.A. Chris Well, and he told me the other day, he said, he quoted this, he said, you can tell the character of a man by what it takes to stop him. Can I ask you, in your Christian life and in the struggles you're going through, what does it take to stop you? When do you throw up your hand and say, well, you know, it's, it's not worth it. Jesus had made clear in his generation that he said 
concerning Satan. He said, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, he is the father of lies, and how do you know the truth? He says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. And Jesus said to them, to the Pharisees, that's why you cannot and will not hear me. There was a, uh, our women's ministry, they studied a book written by Priscilla Shire, What's in a Name? And I just want to give you a summary of what she writes about Satan. Satan, if, if we need to know the enemy, then who is he? What are, what, what are his characteristics? Satan means the adversary of God. Satan means an accuser or adversary. Devil means slanderous. That means what he does, that side of his name means I'm going to say things about you that are not true. I'm going to do everything I can to destroy you and make you look bad. So he maligns the character of God and he maligns the character of Christians. So get used to it. We've never had good press in this world because Satan is always at work influencing the third point that she, brings, that she brings out, Priscilla brings out, is Lucifer means day star or shining one. That is, she says, the enemy's appearance is attractive, <laughs> it's alluring, it is charming, it looks good. That's how he works. Fourthly, tempter means one who tempts people for the purpose of enticing them to sin. In other words, he's, he's got a dog in the fight. He wants to get human beings to serve him by doing things that he knows God has forbid. But he wants to convince them that God's cheating them and that you can really experience your full humanity if you do this. Fifthly, and this is the most chilling of them all to me, she, she points out he's the ruler of the world. Now, he's not sovereign. Was one author, it was Martin Luther who said, Satan is God's devil. <laughs> He's a dog on a leash. He can only go so far, and one of these days God's going to rein him in, and he's going to be gone. But she points out the ruler of the world means the enemy's approach is not isolated to individuals. He has a collective, cultural, global methods designed to derail entire nations and people groups from God's intended plan. So he works through systems and philosophies and education, you name it. He uses all the resources of this world to deceive people. He's called the prince of the power of the air, which means the devil does not work alone. Seventh, accuser means one who condemns. Everyone in this room, myself included, there are sins you've done even this week that you'd be horrified if it was played on the screen overhead. We know, and God knows, but Satan also is a good watcher. He's not omniscient. And he loves to accuse you and bring to your memory the things that you've done. That's what he does. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin with truth. 
and then that's when we come to repentance and we're forgiven. But he's also, she points out that he's also the father of lies, okay? So here's what I'd like to say in response to her writing and to this passage. Listen, this requires, knowing your enemy requires you and I need to know the enemy at the gate. Why the gate? Remember what Jesus said? He said to Peter after his great confession of truth, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we are called to be in the assault mode against the gate, but the gate is the exact location where we're going to encounter Satan. So how can you do that? How can we succeed? How can we stand our ground? And he, that's where he says, you have to know God, and you have to know the schemes of the devil. You have to know who he is and what, how he functions. That's what the scriptures are telling us. So don't be surprised by the stuff that goes on. That's what God is saying. If I could put it this way, he's really giving us a heads up, what you might call accurate intelligence. <laughs> intelligence, remember, is about the business of finding out what the enemy is doing. And greater, greater uh, armies have lost to lesser armies because they had bad intelligence. They were working in the dark. They didn't know what was out there. The reverse of that is that lesser armies have defeated greater armies because they had good intelligence. It isn't just the numbers. It's knowing the strategy. It's being prepared. And God's word using military language is saying, you need to know what the enemy is up to. But here's the third and final point. Strap on the belt of truth. And the belt of truth, uh, I like what Tyndale commentary says about this passage. It says, to face the battle successfully, one must see it coming and understand what it takes and be prepared. In other words, when one straps on this belt, that means he's getting ready. He's not going to be caught off guard. Truth involves looking through the fog of war. You'll read and you'll, you'll hear guys who fought in actual battles will tell you that when you're in the middle of violent conflict and things are blowing up and exploding around you, what they call the fog of war, you get disoriented, you're not sure what you're supposed to. That's why... You learn how to function in that. Truth prepares you to see through the fog of war, and you're not fooled by what you're hearing from the world. You know how this plays out. But if you don't know God's truth, you haven't spent time in his word, you're not going to be ready. You'll be overwhelmed. And remember, this is a life or death struggle. It also, truth is not just seen through the fog of war. Truth is seeing things as they really are. Remember, the enemy, if he lies and cheats, is going to tell you the way it is. But what he's telling you is a lie. And on the other hand, 
if you know God's word, you know a lie when you hear it. Truth, therefore, is seeing what is really there through the eternal eyes of our creator and redeemer. If he made us and if he has redeemed us, he gives us everything we need to know to be equipped. And so I could, I could share things with you about our own, our world system right now. In fact, um, it was God who said in the beginning, he started it. The, the reality is that our world system is telling us there is no truth, even though we're screaming for justice, but there is no justice without truth. In fact, if you have no universal truth, there is no injustice. Think about it. On March 1st, in our halls of Congress, there was a heated debate going on in which one congressman happened to quote the Bible. And this other congressman on the floor of the House of Representatives, standing beneath a portrait of Moses, said, quote, what any religious tradition prescribes as God's will is of no concern to this Congress. Law, which is going to be either right or wrong, is not, does not have any substance to it unless it is based upon the God who exists and who has given us his righteousness and his standards. And you see, in a society like uh, Paul was engaged in in Ephesus that was multicultural, that was had many different religions were present, but there was one that was supreme over all of them. He's sharing the gospel, and people are coming to Christ, and riots are breaking out, he understood that God does not have a word or a law for this group and a different one for that one and a different one for that. He understood right is right and wrong is wrong and it is based solely on the revealed will of God. And so when we see the encouragement here about truth, that's where we must not allow our culture to confuse us. That's why we're in church today. The last thing, I ask the question, he talks about truth, and truth only comes from God. Why the belt of truth? <laughs> why the belt? And the belt is very simply, it's what holds your pants up. Now, I know you're thinking, no, wait a minute, they didn't wear pants. Okay, fair enough. They wore something that wasn't a skirt, but like a tunic. And, and so when they were ready to do battle, do you know what they did? You ever read the passage, gird up your loins? When you're getting ready to engage in actual warfare, what do you do? 
you loosen your belt, you pull, pull the stuff that's down low, you pull it up high, you tighten your belt, and you make sure you've got your sword strap, and you've got, you know exactly where everything is snug and tight so that the unexpected will happen. You know exactly where to reach to use what you have been given. Well, apply that to the Christian life. You can misuse the Bible against the enemy, but you also, if you tighten the belt of truth, you understand now what God has revealed. Now you're ready.